And now, as the Pew Bibles are back, uh, you can turn to page 991. And I will be reading from Matthew 27, verse 15, down to verse 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on his judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The events in the final day of the life of Jesus Christ are once again painstakingly recorded for us in this section of Matthew's Gospel. And as Jesus continues to stand before Pontius Pilate, the call that he is to be put to death grows louder and louder. The accusations of the Jewish leaders say he is worthy of death, but now it crescendos into the voice of the people. They're gathered in Jerusalem. Crucify him! Crucify him! And we see, don't we, the madness of those who would seek the destruction of the innocent Lord Jesus Christ. And we behold what the great hymns say, what Isaiah 53 calls the man of sorrows standing before us. Brothers and sisters, when we think properly about the suffering of Jesus for us, we go immediately to the cross 
For there he suffered in our place. But please, make no mistake, all four Gospels make clear that the humiliation of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus began through his life and his sufferings and are cataloged for us. There in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweats blood, there as he is mocked and humiliated by the religious leaders, there as he is betrayed by Judas, there as he is denied by Peter, there as he stands before Pontius Pilate, obviously innocent, and yet the crowds prefer the notorious Barabbas to Jesus, the murderer to Jesus. And then he is scourged. And then he has a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. Then he is mocked and finally led to the cross where hammers pound nails through his feet and through his hands and he is lifted up to die and to suffer the wrath of God. That is the humiliation of the innocent Jesus. The Bible says in many places, He loved us and gave Himself for us. Why would He do this? And the answer again and again is love. Do you know that answer? In your deep, in your heart, do you know how much He loves you? and what he gave for you. Jesus does not take himself off the hook. He's silent before his accusers. He could have gotten off. But instead, well, let's look in our text today, this particular passage, and the first point in your outline that you can follow along with me, you can find it online uh, at our website. Go to the order of worship, and you can see it and the supporting texts before you. That the first point is that Pontius Pilate stands for all of us when we lack the courage of our convictions. And if you were with us last week, you saw that Pontius Pilate actually represents the public. He is persona publicus. He represents the secular man in his indifference to Jesus. In his busyness, he's just too busy to deal with Jesus. In his uh, objection to the kingly authority of Jesus, he does not want another king. And in his skepticism and his denial of objective truth, all of these things are represented. It's humanity represented by Pontius Pilate. But here it goes even deeper. And we behold in him the unprincipled nature of the fallen soul that cannot keep the uh, courage of their own convictions. At the end of all this matter, he says in Matthew 27, 23, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. But he's not, he's not letting Jesus go. John's gospel says he delivered him over to be crucified. 
And Matthew tells us he gave him to be scourged, for the Romans will be the ones under Pontius Pilate who carry out the execution of Jesus. Listen, do you get this? Had he been a man of integrity, do we not want rulers and judges who are people of integrity? Had he been someone with the courage of his convictions, he would not only have declared that Jesus was innocent, but he would have acquitted him and let him go. But Pilate was not a man of justice. He was more concerned with protecting himself and preserving his reputation and managing his life to look out for number one. And so once again, who does Pontius Pilate represent? All of us. He represents me. He represents you. We need to examine our own hearts when we see something like this. Not just wag our finger at Pontius Pilate. Back when you were a teenager. You know, what are teena teenagers, sadly, are notorious for throwing their friends under the bus. I mean, it's true of adults as well, but, you know, I remember back in high school when one kid became suddenly unpopular. You had to decide. Are you going to hang, hang with this one? You're doing it at your own risk. There's this impulse. Protect yourself first rather than execute your own courage of your own convictions to love your buddy. There is, I remember this, when I was a child, I read a, an edition of Mad Magazine. Anybody else ever see Mad, Mag, Mad Magazine? And there was a cartoon that went something like this. The Lone Ranger, okay, most of you are too young to know the Lone Ranger, but the Lone Ranger and Tonto are galloping across the plains when suddenly uh, a Behind them comes this uh, large uh, battalion, uh, not battalion, this large crowd of angry Indians with tomahawks raised, and they surround the Lone Ranger and Tonto, and the Lone Ranger digs in his heels, Silver's heels, and he turns to Tonto and he says, well, old friends, friend, it looks like we are surrounded. And Tonto says, what you mean we, Kimosabi? There's that impulse. You know, we will protect ourselves. And the Jews come and they know how to get Pilate. They, they come to him and they say, uh, down in John 19, um, verse 12, as Pilate is seeking to release him, the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Oh, they know what button to push. Pilate caves. Pilate represents us all. We've all fallen short, failed to live out our convictions. But what we see in this contrast, this is point number two, is that one more time, again, Matthew, again, the Gospel of John portray for us the innocence of Jesus. Even as the accusers have relied on false witnesses, they are ridiculous. Jesus is innocent. 
Even Judas, in his betrayal of Jesus, he came to realize, and Matthew records it, Jesus was an innocent man, was innocent blood. And now Pontius Pilate, again and again and again, the judge of Jesus Christ declares him innocent with things like, three times, I find no guilt in him, no guilt in him. And did you notice his wife? His wife interrupts, interrupts him as he's sitting on his judgment bench. She sends an emissary with the word, watch out, have nothing to do with that. Now what did she call Jesus? Did you notice that? have nothing to do with that righteous man. Somehow the Holy Spirit had, had told her, you better tell Pontius Pilate, this Jesus, he's messing with his righteous. And of course, again, that explicit repetition, I find no guilt in him. It's all to make a point. Do you let that point sink into your mind and into your heart. Listen. Everybody watching online, everybody here in this room, everybody has what we call a doctrine of Christ. That is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? You, you can't say, I don't have one. You do have one. Who is Jesus? And what do we learn about Him? This is so important. This is so important to me that you understand the purity the holiness, the goodness, the sweetness, the honesty, the love, the beauty of Jesus. It's so important to me, to our Sunday school teachers, to our small group leaders, to our youth group leaders, it's so important that you understand the superior excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is like Him? What's the answer? There is no one like Jesus. There's no God like the living and true God. This is so important as you, as you pray in the morning, as you walk through these doors, as you tune in online, that your heart be captured by Jesus Christ in His glory, by the beauty of the Holy Spirit and the majesty of God the Father. Because when that happens, you are changed, aren't you? You're touched. Your heart is enlarged and you are encouraged. What can we do? What more can we do as pastors, as, as a church, than to lift up Christ before you, the righteous one, the guiltless one, the perfect one? And it causes me to love Him. Do you love Him? Why would you love Jesus Christ? Because of who He is. Is that true for you? Never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Never shrink away from letting other people know how precious He is to you, that there's no one like Him. And Matthew and John emphasize this, not only so that you know who He is, but that you understand what He has done. Because the sacrifice of the Lamb of God must be a lamb that is unblemished. And this leads us to our next point, you see. Because what Matthew is, Matthew is doing is he is building the case 
for the great exchange, which is the gospel message of the Bible. The great exchange is that the innocent one dies and the guilty one is set free. And in God's providence, there's this amazing, unique moment, strange moment, where at this time of year, as the, as the crowds gather in Jerusalem, the, the, the governor is used to setting a prisoner free. Do you know this story? And they, they do it to make the people happy. And, and um, we read in verse 16, and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Who was Barabbas? You know, I mentioned last week Pontius Pilate is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Barabbas is mentioned in all of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And he is described as notorious. What does that word mean? Those of you in the bridge class, what, what does notorious mean? It means he's famous for bad. That's what it means. He's notorious. He's called an insurrectionist. That is, a man who leads in a rebellion. He's called a murderer. Where does this man belong? He belongs in prison. He's a menace to society. Do you understand? Why would anyone want him set free? How can it be that just seven days ago, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna to the King! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And now the same crowd cries out, Crucify him! Crucify him! How does it make sense that you would, you would prefer a notorious murderer to Jesus? And in one of the articles I read this week by Marion Clark, um, he says one word describes it. Coaching. Coaching. And these religious leaders were good coaches. They knew how, it says, to spread themselves throughout the crowd and to begin to, to call in the minds of the people that Barabbas should be released. Yes, Barabbas will help us. We are so disappointed in Jesus. Barabbas is the one we should call for. And they, if you've ever heard of a prison riot, those of you who work, some people we know who work actually in the county prisons and in the, in the jails, uh, how do prison riots happen? They happen as leaders of a particular wing begin to cultivate this insurrection among the people. And suddenly it's a dangerous mob. That's what happens here. And people will say and do anything, even his blood be on us and on our children. So verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas. And Matthew is making clear something very important. It is not only that the leaders rejected Jesus. Yes, we have been seeing how wicked the religious leaders were, but now it becomes clear the people have rejected Jesus as well. 
In John 1, verse 10, it says, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. The people of Israel have rejected their Messiah. But it also says in John 1, verse... Oh, that was John 11 I read. John 1, verse 10 tells us that Jesus... Um, that he has, um, that the Gentiles also, he came into the world and the world knew him not. So it's both Jews and Gentiles who have rejected Jesus. And so now the great exchange occurs. Barabbas, the murderer, the guilty, is set free. Jesus, the innocent, is now sentenced to be crucified. Will we see Barabbas in heaven? I think that's an interesting question. We'll, I'm sure there'll be speculation on that at Wednesday night at our sermon response uh, discussion. And uh, we don't know. We don't know. In some of the movies that have been made, I think Stacy Keach plays Barabbas in one of them. You know, oh, he is grizzled and mean. But could it be that one day Barabbas came to understand how what happened in this moment is a picture of the very gospel itself. I don't know. I wonder. I wonder. First Peter 3.18 When Peter describes the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, here's how he puts it. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And in this horrible moment, you know what's happening? Somehow God is working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And He uses this offensive tragedy to bring about the salvation of His people. Extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, friends, point number four. Jesus suffered horribly for you. Turn over your outline. And he suffered so that you will not experience the wrath of God. And now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the stage is set for the suffering of Jesus to accelerate. It has been bad this far. We've seen that in the, in the uh, catechism question that we read, as I mentioned in my introduction. He has been suffering terribly, but now... His suffering accelerates. And at the beginning of verse 26 is a simple phrase. Don't skip it. And having scourged Jesus. If ever there is a cruel and unusual punishment, it is forbidden in our Constitution. If ever there is a cruel and unusual punishment, it is the Roman scourge. Do you know what that is? It is this long handle that has whips of leather attached to it, and then wound at the end are pieces of sharp rock or lead or broken glass or broken bones tied onto the end. And then usually two men, one on either side of the victim, begin to lash the victim. One and then the other, and then the one, and then the other. And it is designed to rip open the flesh on the back and the shoulders and on the abdomen and the bellies 
and it is to it is to expose the muscles to cause the bleeding and even Josephus as he describes this he calls it a, a most terrible torture that even organs can be exposed as the person suffers Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant do you know that passage we've all heard it I hope you know what Isaiah 53 prophesies about the suffering servant of the Lord who will come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, there it is, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. His wounds. What is the result of his wounds? The Apostle Peter picks up on this very verse in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Oh, my friends, please, let me ask you. This is very important. How does a just God forgive wickedness and sin. He cannot just wink and say boys will be boys. The Old Testament makes abundantly clear in the sacrificial system what we read in Hebrews 9 verse 22. Do you know this verse? It says, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. There must be payment, payment in terms of the shedding of blood, the sacrifice of the animal, pointing forward to this very moment that Christ is about to endure. Will his blood satisfy? Well, let me ask you, whose blood would satisfy for the sins of the world? Will yours can we take you and sacrifice you because your blood is pure and perfect? Is there a volunteer who says, yes, I am so sweet, so pure, so holy, so perfect. I will be the one. Who would say that? There's no one like Jesus. Only Jesus. And so the answer to the question, how does a just God forgive sin, is actually played out before us in these difficult verses in the Gospel of Matthew as he catalogs what happens to Jesus along the way. And this is, do you see the drama unfolding and you hear words, no guilt in him, no guilt in him, a righteous man, no guilt in him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. 
It's played out right before your eyes. How does a holy God forgive sin? This is how. The innocent Lamb of God, the Son of God, offers Himself to be sacrificed for us. Yes, friends, Jesus actually chooses this. We've been alluding to it week after week for this past month. As He was silent last week, we learned He was silent because He was choosing to go. He's choosing to bear this unjust sentence so that you could have grace. Does that make sense to you? Last week, it was very clear. Pilate was willing to let him off the hook. I've, what would I have done? But Jesus is silent because he will now meet his destiny to go to the tree and to be cursed in our place. And he makes that choice. Do you know, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus told us he made this choice. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. That charge I have received from my Father. Oh, friends, Jesus did this for you. I read this week the words of that beautiful hymn written in the 12th century by Bernard of Clairvaux. I love this hymn. And the second verse says, What thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and grant to me thy grace. He really captures it. Have you come to the place where you can say, mine, mine was the transgression? That's what a Christian must do. Have you come to that place? You, you might say, well, you know, Pastor John, I, I'm, uh, I'm not as bad as my next-door neighbor. You know, he kicks the dog. I don't kick the dog. And it's true. You're, you may be a superior to some of the people around you. You're probably a better person than I am. I'm serious. Maybe, maybe you are. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have transgressed His holy law. All hearts, all sheep have gone astray. That's you, that's me, represented by the crowd. But Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And it is in that all that I want you to land now. That the great exchange has taken place. And you who have a bad record and a bad heart, and a bad master because you are a slave to sin. Now have Jesus who comes to give you his perfect record, a new heart, and he becomes your good master. The great exchange for you. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Point five. 
There's a powerful irony here. Those of you who love literature, you see how masterful is the recording of the Gospels. And there's this powerful irony because how do the people respond in verse 25? And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. What a terrible thing to say. Do you, I look around this room. I see how much you love your children, how much I love my children. What a terrible thing to say, and yet this is the cry of the unrestrained, depraved heart where the common grace of God is withdrawn and the wickedness of the human heart is exposed. And they are saying, we don't care whether he's guilty or not. We will be culpable in what is now happening in the actions our religious rulers tell us to take. And we demand that he be destroyed and crucified. Let his blood be on us and let judgment fall on our decision. They call down a curse upon themselves. <sighs> Two months ago, when we studied what's called the, the, the discourse on the Mount of Olives, remember Jesus, his final public discourse? He talks about the end of Israel. He prophesies that the destruction of Israel would come in judgment. And in fact, in 70 A.D., their curse, their maladdiction that they pronounced upon themselves came to pass in 70 AD. And Israel was destroyed in judgment. And they and their children suffered terribly. And yet, this phrase, let his blood be upon us and our children, is a phrase that we Christians use. We just use it differently. But oh, Christian, Oh, North Shore Community Church, we actually want His blood to be upon us and upon our children. And this is what we see in baptism. We see the washing of the Christian washed in the blood of the Lamb. We want His blood to atone for our sins. They misunderstood. Oh, they meant it as a malediction and a curse upon themselves. But we, we, oh, we know that the blood of Christ, 1 John says, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And Paul exalts, therefore having been, do you know this, having been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by His life. So Pontius Pilate, he says in verse 22, What shall I do then with Jesus? He is the man who represents the public. He is the man who represents you. Now the question is put to you. What then shall I do with Jesus? You can push him away. You can say, I'm too busy. I don't care about him I don't like the idea of him being the Lord, and I don't want him as my... You could say that, but I would ask you to reconsider. I would ask whether the word has pierced your heart, and you've come to appreciate his innocence, and you've come to believe 
that he is the Lamb of God and the logic of the gospel makes sense. The great exchange has taken place for you and you've discovered now that you believe in him. And you are grateful for the blood of Christ to be on you and on your children. Well, I hope that is the case. He became the man of sorrows willingly for you and for me. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, our Father, today we praise you for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What a sacrifice. How amazing is this record of the work of Jesus. As we sing this last song, could we say hallelujah? Could we say God be praised who took this worst moment in human history and used it for His glory, for your glory, for our good. We are amazed and we surrender ourselves to you this day. What shall we do with Jesus? We will love Him. We will embrace Him. We will worship Him. Amen.